Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for December 7th, 2017. On today's show, we're going to be talking about a bunch of news, including the possibility of a Taika Waititi Star Wars movie, more on Quentin Tarantino's Star Trek film, J.K. Rowling comes to the defense of Johnny Depp, uh, Detective Pikachu casting in the original Justice League script, uh, Bohemian and Rhapsody finds a new director, and in the mailbag, we'll be taking a look at the best movies which use cities as characters. This is Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Home writer Chris Evangelista. Hello. And Huai Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. Let's just jump right into the news. Minutes before we were set to record, news hit, giving us some new information in Quentin Tarantino's Star Trek film. Apparently, it's going to be R-rated. What do we know, Chris? Yeah, so uh, on Monday, this news broke that Quentin Tarantino uh, pitched a Star Trek film to J.J. Abrams. And J.J. Abrams liked it so much that he and Paramount wanted to assemble a writer's room to make the idea a reality. And that story was very strange. And I I personally kept waiting for news to break that it was incorrect or someone got something wrong. But no, it's apparently really happening. And more confirmation broke today that 
one of the stipulations uh, Tarantino had was that he would only do the movie if it's rated R and Paramount apparently agreed to this. So uh, Tarantino met with three writers, uh, Mark L. Smith, Lindsay Beer and Drew Pierce to hash out ideas. And the rumor has it that uh, Mark L. Smith has become the front runner to write the script. He wrote the, uh, the script for The Revenant also. So uh, apparently this is really happening, even though I continue to find it hard to believe. It seems th- this like I remember back in the day, you know, every year you'd see like this parody trailer showing like, you know, what Wes Anderson's Star Wars would look like and what Quentin Tarantino's whatever would look like. And I, I feel like this sounds like one of those clips from one of those parody videos. It just uh, seems completely odd. Like it seems I don't know, like. What do you think Gene Roddenberry thinks of an R-rated Star Trek movie? Do do either of you have any thoughts on this? I think he might be rolling in his grave. <laughs> um, I I just feel like the idea of an R-rated Star Trek movie goes against all the elements of Star Trek that we have come to know and love, which is about you know um, diplom- diplomacy and. Uh, diversity and bringing in a greater understanding of different worlds and that kind of thing. So I don't know. It just, I'm also a bit flabbergasted by this news story. Just Quentin Tarantino and Star Trek seems like the most bizarre combination for me. My friend actually, when he said this, he was like, I like pizza, beer and ice cream, but I don't want them mixed all together. (laughs) So I think that's a good way of putting it. The reason why a film is usually rated R is one of three things, and that's either, you know, language, uh, nudity, or violence. And I don't see a Star Trek film being violent. You know, they're always trying to take measures of, it, you know, to end wars and not, you know, have violence. You know, I don't see there being a need for nudity in a Star Trek film. And I also don't see, you know, Captain Kirk or whoever this is going to follow, you know, dropping the F-bomb that often. Like, it it doesn't seem necessary to this franchise. But, I don't know. Star Trek, uh, I'm I'm morbidly curious to see what a Quentin Tarantino Star Trek movie is like. So, uh, I'm I'm optimistic about what it could be, but I'm, uh, I don't know, I'm... uh, I'm worried. I'm worried, but you know, what's the chances of this is actually going to happen, Chris? What, what do you think? I don't. I mean, like I said, I honestly thought by this time this week we would have had like a correction on this story, like something would have come out and said this isn't happening. But this latest story makes it sound like Paramount is sort of rushing to make this a reality. Like they're pulling out all the stops. They're giving Tarantino everything he wants to get this made, and. It's just strange. I mean, another strange thing is that he's not writing it himself because, you know, he writes all his movies and that's sort of what he's known for his, you know, his screenplays and his dialogue. And it's very strange that he'd agree to do this, but not write it. So I don't know. There's so many, (laughs) there's so many questions. Maybe the idea is to get a story down and have him come in and do a dialogue pass. But I don't know. Yeah, you're right. It's just so strange. Um, but moving on from Star Wars, I mean, to, from Star Trek to Star Wars, uh, Kathleen Kennedy says she wants a Taika Waititi directed Star Wars film. Uh, Chris, what do we know? Right. So, you know, there's no confirmation or no official offer, but 
someone asked her if she would be open to it. And she literally said, I would love for him to direct a Star Wars movie. I think he has exactly the right sensibility. It was very exciting to see him step into the Marvel Universe and do such an amazing job with Thor. And he in the past has, you know, sort of jokingly expressed interest in it as well. So, I mean, it could happen. Nothing official yet. But so, so basically hand him a anthology movie right now because, you know, he has a relationship with Disney. Uh, KK is obviously in love with his work. So, uh, you know, what do we need to do to make this happen? <laughs> but, uh, I guess what? money, I guess. I guess if they <laughs> offer him the, the right amount of money, he can't say no. Um, HT, you're a fan of Taika Waititi. It, would you want to see a Taika Star Wars movie? I do love Taika, and I'd be really interested to see what his take on Star Wars was. I feel like it would be very similar to Thor Ragnarok, which is essentially a kind of off-the-wall space opera in a way. And I feel like that's what Taika Waititi would bring to Star Wars. But I do want to say I'm going to be the wet blanket here and hopefully and say that I wish that Kathleen Kennedy could consider a female director in the future for a Star Wars film because we have not yet had one. And the YTD HT female directors do not exist. They can't. That's why they can only hire males. Right, right. They just disappear into the void. So I I loved YTD's work and I think he's a real talent. I don't know what else would be different from his Star Wars movie outside of what we've seen with Thor Ragnarok. But I just want to make this call for more diversity behind the camera. I I, I want to take a a, a swerve here and and, uh, a sidetrack and ask you a question. Uh, Hmm. I'm part of the Los Angeles Online Critics uh, uh, Society, and we we have our first awards this year. And we just announced our nominations and – the group kind of decided that, you know, the, one of the awards we were going to have was Best Male Director and Best Female Director because, uh, you know, I think the Academy Awards, they've only ever had like three or four female directors ever nominated in the history. Mm-hmm. So we we kind of wanted to, you know, bring a spotlight to female directors. Um, mm-hmm. But there has been some criticism about this that, you know, it's kind of like, it's, it's, you know... Uh, that they shouldn't be separated, that there should just be best director. So I'm wondering your opinion uh, as a film lover, as a female, as as someone who is obviously fighting this fight, what, what, what is your opinion on this? Hmm, I've heard of this uh, sort of new choice. Um, I I feel like I'm on the, the opinion, I'm of the opinion that there shouldn't be separated categories. So I feel like, if there is a male category and a female category, it would be easier to view the female films as sort of lesser, especially if there are fewer choices out there from female directors. Um, there might just be more slack given to the films that are chosen for these um, or the directors who are chosen for these. And while I'm all about boosting female directors up, I think that they shouldn't be separated. Um, I don't. I think the categorization of it, just um, you should just have it as one category and just try to uh, nominate more female directors, but not ones that don't deserve the awards. Yeah, I- I'm on the I- extreme here. I was actually pushing for, you know, instead of having best actor, best uh, actress, I was, I was, you know, just arguing to actually have one category for that, you know, best 
actor slash actress and best supporting actor slash actress. Um, mm-hmm. But they did not go for that. So, uh, <laughs> um, but I, I think MTV did that recently, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Anyways, we're getting sidetracked here. Let's uh, let's move on from this to J.K. Rowling. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of controversy about Johnny Depp's casting as Grindelwald in uh, the Fantastic Beast movies, and J.K. has been kind of silent about this until now. HD, what do we know? Um, so I am going to be inviting more angry comments again this episode. Uh, so I'm talk- going to be talking about J.K. Rowling's defense of Johnny Depp's casting as Grindelwald, which has been sort of mired in controversy uh, amid all the amid the domestic abuse allegations uh, from his ex-wife Amber Heard. So um, J.K. Rowling, like you said, has been largely silent on this issue, but she recently po- issued a post on her website uh, defending. Grindel, uh, Johnny Depp's casting as Grindelwald. So I'm going to read only part of her statement because it's quite long. Um, she said, Based on our understanding of the circumstances, the filmmakers and I are not only comfortable sticking with our original casting, but genuinely happy to have Johnny playing a major character in the movies. I accept that there will be those who are not satisfied with their choice of actor in the title role. However, conscience isn't governable by committee. Within the fictional world and outside it, we are all we all have to do what we believe is the right thing. So she basically says a lot of uh, non-words. Uh, she doesn't really <laughs> she doesn't really address the allegations against Johnny Depp and uh, her sentence in particular. Conscience isn't conscience isn't governable by committee. Um, is an interesting way of addressing the uh, sort of outcry about, um, you know, the fact that Johnny Depp is uh, an alleged abuser and he is in a huge family franchise. Uh, but in and in the midst of things happening in Hollywood with Harvey Weinstein and other sexual uh, abuse or allegations coming out, it's a very odd way to uh, defend Depp. I think. And it's very surprising to see someone like J.K. Rowling coming to the defense of Depp because she's kind of been very vocal in her opinions of people like him. Or not people like him, but like, I, I, I'm not sure of a good way of saying it. Basically, but, she's she's very yeah. socially act. She's very much of a social activist on yes. Twitter. And she always makes it known that she has very progressive views about you know, politics, about um, economic and social issues. And here it's it feels very against her uh, own values. And she it, it feels like also kind of, I don't want to say a betrayal of the spirit of Harry Potter, but, you know, Harry Potter has always been sort of about the devastating consequences of domestic abuse. For example, Harry was raised in a, in an abusive uh, household. So it just feels like disingenuous, I think. For sure. And you can read HT's full write up on this. Uh, you know, it has a lot more. Um, <laughs> it's, it's probably going to get a lot more people mad at her uh, on SlashFilm.com. But moving on mm-hmm. from that, we have some Detective Pikachu casting. I know you guys are probably excited about this live action Pokemon movie. And uh, Ryan Reynolds is going to be voicing Pikachu. Chris, what is going on here? Yeah, this is pretty much right up there with the Tarantino Star Trek news in that I don't really understand why this is happening or 
what's what's going on here. But Ryan Arnold is going to be voicing Detective Pikachu in the live action Pokemon movie uh, from Goosebumps director Rob Letterman. Um, the character is going to be motion capture. I, I don't know if that means Ryan Reynolds is going to do the motion capture himself. I sincerely hope he is because I really want to see set photos of him <laughs> in that in that mocap suit running around the set as Detective Pikachu. I, I want them to build a suit that kind of has that jiggle and stuff just so that he has like to be able to know how to move. <laughs> you know, I don't want right. it to just be a normal motion capture suit. Yeah, no, absolutely. It should be like a literal Pikachu <laughs> costume with mo- motion capture sensors on it. That would be amazing. Um, but Pikachu doesn't normally talk in, in the games in the show, right? Like, so. Well, from my research, cause I've written, I've actually somehow written four different stories about this movie. I've learned <laughs> that, Unlike other, apparently there are multiple Pikachu's. I thought it was just one, but there, no, there are many. There are multiple because you know they Ash has one Pikachu, <laughs> but there are several of the species. So right, the I, Pikachu I didn't, that <laughs> I didn't know that. I thought there was just one, but apparently there are many. And this specific Pikachu, there's a human boy in the video game who can, for some reason, understand what he's saying. So I assume that means this Pikachu still talks. Like the other Pikachu, but there's a human who can understand him for some reason. And that human teams up with him to solve mysteries. This is a real thing, by the way. I'm not making this up. But in this movie, instead of it sounding like Pikachu and him understanding him, he will sound like Ryan Reynolds. Right. I, I, I doubt they're going to do that whole, only I can understand you. I'm sure it's just going to be, oh, this, this Pikachu has Ryan Reynolds' voice. I will say there is a history of Pokemon speaking in the show. Meowth is one, but Pikachu has never once spoken. And the one time he has in um, a recent Pokemon movie, it elicited only horror. So I don't know how this will um, will hold over. Yeah, HT, you're probably the biggest Pokemon fan of of this bunch. What, what do you <laughs> think of Ryan Reynolds as Pikachu? I am. Again, flabber- flabbergasted, a little horrified. I don't. I just. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Pikachu, in a sense, was made to be merchandised as like this cute little um, character and figurine, and him having the voice of uh, a suave or snarky Ryan Reynolds is very against his character. Even though, yeah, like you said, Chris, he's a spe- he's one of a species of many, but. Um, I, I'm not really sure what to make of this. It's, I, yeah, I, I don't like it. Actually, I will say that. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like it. Okay, moving on. We've been talking a lot about Justice League and the evolution that that film had gone through uh, from script to production to reshoots to, you know, reshoots with uh, Josh Whedon. Uh, you wrote up the story a couple days ago that we are finally getting to now uh, about the original Justice League script which apparently involved time travel Batman and Wonder Woman's child. What, yeah. what, what is the craziness of this original Justice League script? My exact reaction, Peter. Um, so this original Justice League script was penned in 2011 by Will Beale. Uh, so this was before Zack Snyder ever uh, set eyes on Justice League and even before Man of Steel's release. So this was uh, back when Warner Brothers wanted to start off the DC Cinematic Universe uh, with the Justice League movie um, instead of 
building up with several solo films like the Marvel Universe did. So um, this is a very uh, jam-packed so, so and let, let's imagine, convoluted script. Let, let's imagine that in a world where Zack Snyder never got his hands on DC – and we're coming off Batman, uh, what is that, The Dark Knight Rises? Dark Knight Rises. Mm-hmm. What would this Justice League movie have been? It would have been a mess. <laughs> um, I'm sure people who read comics would love this because this story is definitely very suited towards a comic book crossover. But on the big screen, it would have been quite convoluted and confusing. So the story is essentially about how Darkseid takes control of Superman and brainwashes him so that he can invade Earth and destroy humanity and the newly formed Justice League, which has Batman, Wonder Woman uh, before Superman, um, and The Flash, and Green Lantern's Jon Stewart. So Aquaman was not in sight at all. So this would, after Superman helps to to destroy Earth, uh, he accidentally... Uh, goes through a boom tube to through time and he lands in the future where he it turns out he's turned the world into a post-apocalyptic wasteland and now Batman and Wonder Woman are leading the revolution against Darkseid with their child and um, he, he the Flash goes back in time to try to warn the young Justice League of this their impending doom and then the day is saved so it's quite confusing there's a lot more characters in there there's about 20 20 or so supporting characters and villains who also make an appearance so characters like amanda waller and uh, cheetah and even uh even killer croc it's it's very (laughs) it's very packed with stuff and plot and um would have been a very confusing introduction to the dc cinematic universe if it had uh, gone through. Yeah, on top of that, you don't know any of these characters aside from mm-hmm. maybe Batman. Uh, that's just that's just insane. But let's move on from that to Bohemian Rhapsody, the movie that Brian Singer was directing. He had been he has been fired, as we reported on on the site and on this podcast. He is now they have now found a replacement for him. Chris, who is replacing Brian Singer? Director Dexter Fletcher, who directed uh, the film Eddie the Eagle, which I did not see, will be taking over for Brian Singer. Um, I remember when the news broke that Brian Singer was fired, there was only about two weeks of production left on the film. So I don't know if that means Dexter Fletcher will even get a credit when the film comes out or if it's still going to be considered a Brian Singer film. But he's uh, taking over for Brian Singer. Yeah. Um, you know, I, if there's only two weeks left of the movie, I can only imagine that he won't get a credit. But we will we'll be keeping an eye on this, uh, as uh, obviously all of Hollywood is. But let's now jump into the mailbag. Jeff S. writes in asking which films use a city the most effectively as a character. Um, and surprisingly, Chris's list does not feature any films from philadelphia we don't have rocky we don't have philadelphia we don't have any of those any of those uh films uh but before we get to chris i'll I'll start off i'll start this off with um lost in translation i think there is no film that better has a 
a city as a character than Sofia Coppola's movie. Um, you know, Tokyo is, you know, front and center in that movie. And it's kind of the characters are wandering through it. And uh, I just, you know, it's a film that either you love or, you know, is not for you. But it's definitely a film that is about that city. Uh, HT, what is your first pick? Uh, so my first pick is a movie I saw recently and which is now streaming on Hulu. Uh, it's called Columbus. It's Kogonada's directorial debut and it stars John Cho and Haley Lou Richardson. And it takes place in the city of Columbus, Indiana, uh, which is apparently a city that's well known for its uh, architecture. Um, it's a very quiet film. It only uh, debuted this year, but it's it makes amazing use of the architecture and the city itself, which was is one that I never heard of before, but you come to really know and love throughout the course of the movie. And um, as John Cho's character comes to know and love the city too. Um, and it's, it's, it, the entire film is very still and very just serene and definitely is a, is a supposed more of a showcase for the architecture in the city. And uh, you have won for the most obscure f- film on this list. Uh, <laughs> but going from that to film history, Chris, what is the first on your list? Uh, my first would be The Third Man, which uh, is set in Vienna, which is somewhere I've never been. But that film just gives such a great depiction of that city and just how it looks. And I mean, it's, you know, it's a film noir, so it's very shadowy and you know, I doubt the real place looks like it looks in this film, but the way it's presented here makes you feel like you're in the locations. And also, since you shamed me into not mentioning my hometown, <laughs> I will, I will throw some love to uh, just a, a handful. Um, Blowout is one movie that depicts Philadelphia really well. Brian De Palma's Blowout, and the Rocky movies, obviously, but also Creed, the the recent Rocky spinoff. Uh, really feels like Philadelphia because it depicts Philadelphia pretty much as it is now. Like the way I know it is how it looks in Creed. So that's a good example there. And uh, then, you know, you're from Philly. I, I am originally from the Boston area. And for many years growing up, there was not really movies that were set in, you know, Boston. And then, uh, you know, uh, Mystic River and Goodwill Hunting and Departed came around and I started to get to see some of, you know, my home city uh, on the big screen. And I think probably the best one that d- does it the best is uh, Gone Baby Gone, uh, Ben Affleck directed film. It, uh, you know, portrays Southie and, you know, th- those kind of areas. And I know Affleck has kind of done that to death at this point uh, with, you know, the town and his other films. But, uh, you know, Gone Baby Gone, I think, perfectly perfectly captures that corner of Boston. Uh, H.T., uh, I talked about Lost in Translation and people walking through a city. The next one on your list is is that for another city. Yes. So my next choice is Before Sunrise, directed by Richard Linklater and starring Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. It also uh, deals with Vienna, which is... Uh, like the third man, except it's much more sun-kissed and um, very leisurely and lazy. It's a beautiful depiction of the city and almost feels like a fantasy version of it just because um, because the world that Celine and Jesse walk through feels 
sort of like a world to their own and uh, a love letter to Vienna at the same time. So it's it's a beautiful movie. And I pick it over the other before movies just because it feels more like it's about the city itself than it is about um, Celine and Jesse. It's interesting. Director Richard Linkletter, a lot of his films kind of spotlight a city. You know, obviously the other before films like Before Sunset, which is Paris, but also Slacker, I think, is probably the best film about Austin, Texas that uh, is out there. Um, Chris, what is your next pick? Right. So uh, I'll just preface this by saying I'm not going to get into Woody Allen as a person because clearly he's not a good person and I, I will never probably watch a new Woody Allen movie again in my life. But his early film Manhattan is uh, it's a very good film and it, it depicts, you know, New York very uh, concisely. I mean, the opening of the film is sort of like this five minute tour through the city and it's shot in this sort of beautiful black and white. And I don't know, I've always loved specifically that opening of the film. I, I also love that film. I, I, there's so many great uh, New York films uh, that I could have put on this list. Uh, you know, I, I kind of like the the ones that you probably wouldn't choose, like the You've Got Mail, which is, you know, the Tom Hanks uh, romantic comedy uh, that Kevin Feige uh, got his uh, start on. Um, and um, uh, But the, the New York film I would pro- that is on my list is Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Um, because it just kind of showcases a lot of Manhattan. It's kind of like one of those films that kind of, you know, every scene is, you know, in a another corner of that city. And it might not be the realistic version of that city, but it's the movie version of that city. And I, I kind of love it, even though it's not a great film. HT, what's up next for you? Uh, my next film is In Bruges, which is Martin McDonough's film about two hitmen who uh, end up sort of spending a couple days in Bruges as a hideout. And it's a really, even though it's a sort of intense and violent and brutal film, the way that it treats Bruges is, again, like sort of have, has a loving gaze towards it. And uh, it's it's quite gothic, the architecture that you see in Bruges and uh, very wintry and Eastern European. So it definitely is a different depiction of Europe than you usually see. So and uh, I think it's it's probably it's my favorite McDonough film. I'm not sure he's been able to uh, um, better him best that film, but it's a uh, it's definitely the strength of Bruges itself that helps uh, elevate his dialogue and his characters. Chris, what is the last film on your list? So this is, I guess this is kind of a cheat because it's not really a city and it's also fictional, <laughs> but uh, the town of Amity in Jaws, it's, you know, the Island of Amity in Jaws, which it was shot on Martha's vineyard. But even though, you know, that's technically not a real place, Amity isn't, I mean, it feels very real in that film. I mean, it just, you can just get the lived in sense of that town and the geography of it. And, you know, you get to, you know, the, there's the mayor and the town people. And it just, it just feels like a real place. So that's, that's my pick. And my last pick uh, is a movie about Los Angeles in the 1990s, I think it's probably the movie that best captures Los Angeles in the 1990s. And that movie is uh, Doug Lineman's, uh Swingers, which uh, 
stars um, John Favreau and Vince Vaughn. Uh, I think you know, even though I think a lot of the mo- movie that like people kind of quote and stuff, the uh, you know Vegas, baby Vegas, and t- you know it, it kind of goes to Vegas. And I, I think part of living in LA is that you you do, do, do take those those road trips to Vegas, but it perfectly captures kind of like the the Hollywood town that LA is and kind of how everybody's trying to act cooler than they are and just the people and the place and uh you know it might not capture la as it is today but it's still you know you can you can see it um even though you know some of those locations no longer exist um it's it's uh probably my favorite la movie hd what is the last movie on your list so as a sort of counterpoint to the dreamy, uh, moralist depiction of, of Tokyo that we have in your pick, Lost in Translation, I choose Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift, which surprisingly is a really a- accurate depiction of the sort of seedy underbelly of Tokyo and you know, the driving community there and also the subcultures uh, in Tokyo as well. It's it's really fun. It's incredibly kinetic, and it deals. It has um, both the uh, settings of school, of the underground driving community, and of subcultures like the Lolita and other various uh, strange and aesthetic cultures there. And it's it's wild and weird, and I think that's why it perfectly captures Tokyo to me. I'm sure there's a ton of movies that we did not include that people are, you know, mad about. They're probably screaming at their uh, iPod. Or do people still listen on iPods? Probably their iPhone. iPhone. Yeah. Um, so They're if, using the Microsoft Zune, I believe. <laughs> yes. So if if there is uh, some movies that we missed, uh, send them to peter at slashfilm.com. And if we get enough, we'll, we'll mention them on the air um, as well. Uh, and you can send your questions to peter at slashfilm.com for for consideration for the mailbag please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention them on the air chris where can we find more of your work online i'm on slashfilm.com and i'm on twitter at c evangelista 413 ht where can we find you you can find me on twitter at htranbui on slashfilm.com and i have the podcast millennial falcon podcast on itunes you can find me at Slash Home on Twitter. You can find all the stories we talked about today on SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast, Slash Home Daily, published on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Some people ask, why do we mention that? Because people are obviously finding us in some way. This podcast is also published on the site and on YouTube, and that's why. So some people don't know that it's actually on iTunes. Uh, but if you do know it's on iTunes, please go to iTunes. Give us a rating. Give us a review. Uh, tell your friends about this podcast. Uh, we are growing at a rapid pace, and I, I appreciate all of the people out there listening. And we will see you tomorrow. <laughs>